Good morning, Bethel. It, it is a, a great day to be here, a banner day. Um, and so I'm going to repeat it. Brothers, we have missed you, and it is so good to see you back here this morning. And uh, sister, you've been gone for a while too, and it's good to see your beautiful face this morning and um, celebrating together with the, the Meyer family, or if you're on the South African side of the family, I guess it's the Mayer family. I never know. It was good to hear Piper, though, say it the way I remember it. So. Um, but we, we are so glad that we can celebrate together. And uh, I was tempted this morning in, in honor of uh, Father's Day to kind of start off with some dad jokes. Um, in fact, I was just going to pull out my cell phone and go to one of the text strings that I have. Um, there's another dad in the congregation that um, we don't communicate a lot, but basically we just send dad jokes back and forth. So, um, but, you know, and I, I thought maybe that's, uh, that's not the way to go. So, uh, but, you know, everyone loves a good story, right? And Jesus, Jesus was a masterful storyteller. Um, but up to this point in, in Mark's gospel, in the narrative, we haven't really heard much from Jesus, right? It's, a, it's an action-packed narrative. We, we see Jesus immediately going places and again doing things. In fact, Mark rarely spends a lot of time telling us what Jesus taught. Instead, he lets kind of the account of his movements and, and the various encounters that he has and, um, and the deeds that he does, he lets all of that kind of carry the weight of the message of Jesus. So there's only two passages in the entire gospel where he recounts any extended body of teaching. The first one's here in chapter 4, where we are today, and the other one is in chapter 13. So with Mark being that selective um, in the content of his teaching, we really need to focus on what little he does include because it's fundamental and it's of primary importance, right? He's, he picked it for a reason. Um, so here's how uh, the commenter uh, James Edwards puts it. He says, the teaching of Jesus is like a precious gem that requires a proper setting to accentuate it. We stand a better chance of understanding the gospel, in Mark's mind, if we first see it demonstrated. The spoken word is, of course, necessary, but as an interpretation of what Jesus does rather than as a substitute for it. Mark's vigorous narrative is designed to prepare us to hear what Jesus has to say. So this morning, we want to hear what Jesus has to say. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We also want to learn how to hear the words of Jesus, and especially when he speaks in parables, as he does here in chapter 4. So before we launch into that, I want to make sure we understand what are parables. What is a parable? Well, a parable is a, a story or a saying that uses figurative language to demonstrate a truth. The, the Greek term uh, is parabole. I don't speak Greek, so I don't, but I'm, it's something like that. I mean, it looks like parable, uh, but it also looks like parabola, and there's a reason for that. Um, it, it's typically used to translate a more general Hebrew term, mashal, um, and that word means to represent or to be like something. So it literally means to set one thing next to something else. It's, it's saying this is kind of like this. The Old Testament tends to use that term mashal to, um, to talk about anything that's proverb-like with hidden or elusive truth. So to help you understand a spiritual truth, I'm going to give you something earthly and familiar that you can compare it to. So, for example, um, if we look back um, just a chapter before, in, in chapter 3, verse 23, um, that's where Mark mentions that Jesus was um, teaching in parables. And then right after that, 
should have not closed my Bible. So in, in 3.23, um, he says, um, in Matthew, that's the reason why. It didn't look familiar. Mark 3 is where we are. Well, Mark 4, but I'm going back to Mark 3.23. says he, he uh, called them to him and said to them in parables, how can ca- Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Um, so that is a parable, right? It doesn't sound a whole lot like the classic parables that we think of. It's just a basic comparison. But that's what a parable is. Okay? It can be uh, as simple as a, a little truism like, you are the salt of the earth. Um, it could also be a, a long, complex story, like the tale of the two sons that we, are, that we know from Luke 15. But any kind of analogy, illustration, or comparison, it, it fits into this broad category of a parable. Jesus used parables all the time. In fact, we have a record of more than 60 uh, different parables in the Gospels. And they're mostly found in Matthew and Luke. There's, like I said, a few of them here in, in Mark. And then there's none explicitly mentioned in John, although um, there is parabolic language there. Um, but Jesus didn't invent parables. You'll find parables in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel 17, the, the parable of the two eagles and the vine. We're not going to go and try to exposit that today. Um, but there's a famous example of Nathan confronting David right after he had sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and had murdered her husband Uriah to cover it up. So Nathan comes to, to uh, David and he says, David, let me tell you a story. He tells him the story about a man who had a, a whole lot of sheep and, and another man uh, who had just one sheep. And the rich man didn't want to use any of his sheep, so he stole the poor man's sheep. David is outraged at this story. He says, that man ought to be killed. Nathan says, you're that man. That's a parable, right? You lay the story alongside the story of David, and as soon as Nathan says, you are the man, David instantly gets the point. And that's how parables work. The only way that parables are are really going to be effective is if they're explained in some way. The stories themselves are simple and clear enough, right? You don't need any sort of mystical uh, knowledge to understand them, but you do need to know what it is that they're illustrating. So notice David didn't need any kind of point-by-point explanation. He simply needed to know the key to what the parable was illustrating. So that's how Jesus' parables work. He pulls stories out of everyday life. There's lots of family and farming and fishing, and he's illustrating the kingdom of God. And when Jesus tells parables, he's using them in two ways. He's using them to both reveal, but also to conceal. Right? He uses them to make truth clear, but he also uses them to make truth obscure. So on the one hand, the parables are an act of grace designed to disclose spiritual truth to those who believe. But on the other hand, parables are an act of judgment designed to hide the truth from them. And it seems at this point in Jesus' ministry where we are, hiding the truth is becoming just as important to Jesus as revealing it. But why? Why is that the case? I think that's a question that we need to ask of this text today. And I I hope we'll shed some light on that by the time we get to the end. And yes, pun intended. So here's how I'd like to approach our passage today. Um, There's an outline, um, and it might look a little different from the outline in the bulletin, but that's okay. Um, So first, we're going to set the context with the narrative bookends. So there they are. I'm waiting for slide two. Do we have it? 
Yeah, there we go. Okay, there's our narrative bookends at, the, at either end. Um, and then we're going to dive into the parables themselves, make sure we understand what it is that Jesus is teaching to the crowd. Uh-huh. Then we're going to take a closer look at kind of the middle section of the passage where Jesus is teaching not the crowd, but the disciples. Um, and that's where he explains to them the purpose of the parables, right? And then, finally, right in the heart of the passage, we want to sink our teeth into the interpretation and the application of this one specific parable that Jesus says is the key to understanding all the other parables. So that's where we're heading today. So let's, let's dive in here. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Tells us that Jesus is still in Galilee beside the lake that should be by now pretty familiar to us. Okay, we've seen it in chapter 1, verse 16. We've seen it in chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 7. And now here again, he's by the, the Sea of Galilee. And it says, such a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it. Now, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 9, you might re- actually remember he had told his disciples to get a boat ready. Um, because the crowd was there and, and they were crushing in on him. Uh, that crowd could be so relentless, so dominating, such a hindrance that it actually says back in, in chapter 3, verse 20, the crowd gathered to such an extent they couldn't even eat a meal. So now here they're pressing in so hard on Jesus. The only thing he can do to create a little bit of distance is to get into a boat and push off into the water. But actually that setting would have created this little amphitheater effect. Right? Actually, uh, Israeli scientists have gone and studied the acoustics of this place that's called the Bay of Parables, and it's, it's right there near um, Jesus' headquarters in Capernaum. So it's probably where he was. And they found that it's ideal for broadcasting the human voice. It would be easy for thousands of people to hear a single person preaching from that spot. So it says there in verse 2, Jesus was teaching them many things in parables. And then Mark includes three of the parables. So it's not Mark's intent to provide an exhaustive account of all of Jesus' teaching. He's just selecting out a few of them so that he can um, illustrate the form of the parable and the themes that were common in parables. So here in chapter 4, we're going to get three related stories, and they all have to do with sowing and growing. They're all seed parables. And they're here to tell us about the character of the coming of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been proclaiming. So now if you jump down to the end of the passage, like I said, we're we're covering the bookends first. We're going to get this little summary statement in 33 and 34, where it says that Jesus taught many such parables. And in fact, from this point on, he didn't speak to, to the crowds without using a parable. It was only in private to his own disciples that he would explain everything. So what I want to key in on here in these last uh, two verses here, in 433 um, and 34, it says um, there's, there's two key words. Um, one of them is found, let me find it here, uh, is found uh, at the end of 33. And you'll see that word 13 times in 34 verses. Ten separate statements where Mark uses the verb to hear or to listen. You'll see it in verse 3, verse 9, verse 12, 15 and 16, 18, 20, 23, 24, and then again here for the 10th statement in 33. In fact, in, the, in this passage, there's two commands. The first one is listen. That's the imperative. We find that one in verse 3, and then he repeats it two more times, again in 9 and 32. Listen. Let him hear. That's one command. And the second command is actually related to the first one. It says, take heed what you hear in verse 24. So the idea is pay attention. Be careful how you listen. So that's the first keyword in today's passage. The second one you find right before it in 33. 
So nine times in this passage, Mark refers to the word, the word. So the main point today is take heed how you hear the word of God. Satan wants to take the word of God away from people's minds and hearts. He wants to take the word away so that we can't bear fruit. He wants to take away the word so we can't follow Jesus as we ought. He wants to take away the word so that it can't lead us to believe in Jesus, call on the name of the Lord, and be saved. So there's a lot at stake if you don't take heed to how you hear the word of God. Without the word of God abiding and taking root in our hearts, we can't bear fruit, be disciples, or inherit eternal life. So how we hear the word of God has eternal consequences. Now with that sobering thought in mind, we're going to listen to the word of God spoken in these parables. So we move on to the parables themselves. <coughs> Besides illustrating what the kingdom of God is like, these, the three parables that are included here, um, they have a couple of, of other things in common. As we said before, they're, they're all about seeds, right? But they're also all surrounded by this admonition to hear. So what does Jesus want us to hear about seeds. In and of themselves, seeds are somewhat unremarkable. If we didn't know anything about them, we probably wouldn't value them any more than a handful of dirt or some grains of sand. But we do know that they've got tremendous potential. So once they've been planted and tended to and waited for, they can grow into Majestic oak trees, like that one out on the corner of our property. Or beautiful delphiniums. If you don't know that flower, you need to get to know that flower. It's gorgeous. Or delicious watermelons. They all start with seed. So we need to not overlook or underestimate the power of the seed. And even more so, the Word of God has tremendous potential. So the, the power of the gospel in its humility and its simplicity can be overlooked, underestimated. But like the seeds, the gospel holds a surprise because the word of God has the potential to grow into something entirely unexpected. So that's the truth that we're going to see illustrated in each of these seed parables. So parable of the sower, chap uh, chapter 4 uh, starting in verses 3 through 9. It's the, um, the longest of these and, and the best known. Um, so the, the sower goes out to sow. He casts his seed widely, generously, indiscriminately. You might even say wastefully. He's, he's hoping to reap a harvest. And, and if you weren't familiar with the agrarian practices of the first century, um, you might be tempted to label this farmer as, as foolish or incompetent. I mean, who tries to plant a garden like that, right? He's just tossing seed pell-mell, willy-nilly everywhere. And he loses three-quarters of it to the birds and the rocks and the thorns. But in Jesus' world, this kind of broadcast sowing actually was pretty standard practice. Right? The farmer knows that his seed's going to fall on different kinds of soil, but then he's going to till the ground and he's going to create furrows in the soil so that as many of those seeds as possible can take root. So there's really nothing that unusual about this story so far until we get to the harvest. I tried to read up this week on wheat yields. It was a long week. Um, I really didn't find any consensus um, on what to expect. Um, some people asserted um, anywhere from like a, a two-fold or four-fold, maybe up to even a seven- or eight-fold average yield, with tenfold being a bumper crop. But then there were other people that said, no, 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 like 30-fold would have been a good crop, 
not really unprecedented. 60-fold would have been like, you know, particularly welcome. A hundredfold would have been beyond your wildest expectations. I don't think we need to get caught up in the like specifics of the, the numbers. We certainly don't want to do numerology here with this passage. Um, but I do think that that number hundredfold should bring to mind um, the story of Isaac from Genesis 26. Remember at the time there was a famine in the land and um, Isaac would have been tempted to go to Egypt and, and the Lord said, don't go to Egypt. Stay here in the promised land. I'll bless you. And then we're told in verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. So a hundredfold harvest indicates the hand of God is at work. So this kind of irony is actually typical in Jesus' parables. So it's like the punchline of a good joke, right? You're going in, in a direction, and then suddenly it takes this surprising turn and challenges our assumptions. It, it upsets our expectations. And, and that's what happens in this story. You're, you're starting off with this kind of discouraging odds, right? A farmer is just, just hoping to eke out some kind of meager harvest at best. But it doesn't end on that discouraging note. So look at the crescendo of verbs in verse 8. We have yielding, growing, increasing, bearing fruit. He ends up reaping in abundance. So that's the story. Now, what do you think the audience that's there, the thousands of people, what what do they think about this parable? Do you think they burst into applause at the end of it? Yes, that is exactly why I came out today, to hear this message. Maybe more like blank stares, cricket chirps, some people scratching their heads, exchanging puzzled looks. Did we just get an agricultural lesson? We thought this guy was a Bible teacher, you know? What's going on here? So the point of that story is probably completely lost on the majority of his audience that day. Now, remember that a parable is supposed to draw out a comparison by setting it next to something it's like. So this story is not really about farming and crop yields. It's not going to end up in the almanac, right? It's about the ministry of Jesus and the fate of the gospel. That's what it's next to. That's what it's comparing. So up to this point in our study of Mark, Jesus' ministry has been met with opposition, and rejection from the religious leaders. Misdirected enthusiasm from the crowds. Misunderstanding from the disciples. So no one seems to grasp the kingdom that Jesus is preaching. And so the prospects of his mission look about as precarious as the prospects of that sower. The hard ground The rocks and the thorns seem to symbolize here the hard-heartedness, shallow faith, and false hopes of his hearers. But this this parable, like the two that will follow, represent the inbreaking of the kingdom and the astounding growth in spite of inauspicious beginnings. So God is at work here, hidden and unobserved, through the gospel, to produce a yield that's totally disproportionate to human prospects and effort. Regardless of these bleak odds, the harvest in Jesus' ministry is going to be beyond compare. So that's the first parable. We're going to skip down. Remember, we're kind of taking these, working toward the center of the passage. So we're going to skip down to verse 26 and now turn our attention to the second of the three seed parables. He says the kingdom of God is as if. Okay, a very clear comparison here. Right? Another farmer scattering his seed. But, but this one, once he does that, he, he just goes about his other business. He goes to bed at night, gets up in the morning. He's tending his flocks. He's mending his equipment. All in the confidence that the seed he's sown is going to sprout and grow and produce fruit, it says, by itself. 
Actually, you'd probably recognize the Greek word that's there, automate. Sounds familiar, right? Automatically. The farmer doesn't need to help it or to coax it or to fret over it. The only thing he needs to do is sow the seed and allow the seed to do what's inherent in it, to grow. God's word is like that seed. So as humans, we do play a role in introducing it to the soil, but we don't determine its effect. Our goodwill and our intentions, they don't empower the gospel. And thankfully, neither do our failures render the gospel impotent. So we can go to bed at night, get up in the morning, resting in the confidence that this world belongs to God, right? My dad used to say, God's still on the throne. He hasn't left. He's doing his work, okay? He is secretly, mysteriously, and sovereignly working out his redemptive purposes, despite everything we might see to the contrary. So there's a lot more we could probably say about this parable, but we're going we're gonna to keep moving. We're going to go to the next one in um, verses 30 to 32. So in this one, um, it's about another seed. This time it's a mustard seed. And Jesus, speaking proverbially, he, he calls it the smallest seed of all the seeds on earth. Is it, though? I mean, scientifically speaking, No. Um, there are orchids in the tropical rainforest that, with seeds that are like one, I'm putting my fingers out like you could see this, like one three hundredth of an inch long. So that, that's microscopic. Begonia seeds, on the other hand, they're like a hundredth of an inch. So they're three times bigger than that. And mustard seeds, well, they're about a twentieth of an inch, so 15 times bigger um, than these orchid seeds. But um, that's still pretty small, right, Hope? Yeah, pretty small. Okay? It's, it's insignificant, right? Easily overlooked. And yet, when it's sown on the ground, it grows into a shrub large enough for the birds to nest in. So the, the point of this parable is this, that something so large could grow from something so small is kind of incomprehensible. And the analogy that Jesus makes with the kingdom of God is this. The word of God, the gospel, when it's first declared to the world, seems small and insignificant. There's so many other things that seem somehow more pressing, somehow more urgent. You know, you got the proverbial places to go, people to see, things to do. And in comparison to these things, the gospel can seem like that tiny speck on the tip of your finger. It's easy to look at it for a moment and then just overlook it for good. But the gospel refuses to be overlooked. It's the seed of God's creative and redemptive presence. It might start off small, but then it spontaneously grows into something that we can no longer ignore. So the imagery of seeds in these three parables is meant to convey the surprising power of the Word of God, to grow from something tiny and tenuous to something mature and lasting. The kingdom of God breaks into the world in obscurity and insignificance, but his reign is going to grow into something that's more all-encompassing, more transformative than this world can imagine. So here's the question now that we have. How does this growth become effective in our lives? Parables can't be understood from a distance. Parables can only be understood by entering into them, by seeing ourselves in the stories and then allowing those stories to lay claim on us. Here's how the preacher Sinclair Ferguson puts it, and I'm not going to do it justice. His accent, you, you should go listen to this sermon, The Waiting Father. It's not about this parable, but it's still great to listen to. He says this, every parable is a mirror that Jesus holds up before our eyes and asks us, what do you see in this mirror? 
And he judges and assesses our spiritual condition by our ability to see the right things in the mirror. And when we look into the mirror of parables, there are essentially two people we're supposed to see. We're supposed to see ourselves in our true light. And we're supposed to be able to discover God in his true character. But how do we enter, drop our guard so that the parables have their intended effect? The answer is repeated here in Mark 4, actually 10 times, right? We enter the parables by hearing. Not everyone can hear the parables. I mean, they hear, but they don't hear. So let's go back to the section that starts there in verse 10, where we learn that Jesus is now alone with just the disciples, okay? Where did the crowds go? Well, we're not told. Uh, It's likely that this is, and I'm going to borrow a Chris Elliott word here, an intercalation. Is that the right word? Is that what you got? Yeah. Yeah. So that is to say, uh, the narrative that Mark inserts here, it's out of chronological order, okay? Um, So that what he's doing is punctuating the theological point with this. Um, Actually, Mark uses this literary technique quite frequently, uh, and there's actually a a term for it. Um, It's called a Markin sandwich. Who knew? Um, The sandwich, um, what Mark's doing is he's interrupting the narrative of Jesus teaching the crowd in parables, and he's inserting this separate other episode where Jesus is alone with just those around him with, uh, with the 12 disciples. So I'm not sure that really qualifies as alone time, but I'm not going to press that point. Um, so Jesus is alone with just his close followers, those who have ears to hear and have believed his message. And they're asking questions. Why do you teach this way? What does it all really mean? And in some ways, the answer that Jesus gives them is kind of almost as cryptic as the parables themselves. Look at the answer he gives them there, uh, starting in verse 11. He said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's going to leave some more questions for me. What's the secret? How do you define those that are outside? What's this about seeing and not perceiving and hearing but not understanding? And is Jesus really suggesting that the purpose of parables is to explicitly hide truth so people can't understand and turn and be forgiven? That's a hard word to hear from Jesus. So let's, let's see if we can tackle some of these. Well, first, let's, let's go to the word secret. The word there is actually um, mystery. So we shouldn't take it to mean you know, something that's vague or difficult to understand. It, it would be better described as something that has been hidden in the past, but eventually revealed. That's how the Bible uses the word mystery. So when Jesus speaks of the mystery of the kingdom, he's actually talking about himself. What he, what he means is that his identity as the Messiah king has been hidden in the past, but now is being revealed. And this knowledge is being given to this inner circle of followers. It's kind of like a, a sacred secret or inside information that only the believers are given to understand. So understanding the kingdom of God is a free gift for those whom Jesus has chosen as his disciples. Well, then, who are the outsiders? Well, that's just everybody else. That's the scribes and the Pharisees who have openly declared their opposition. That's the the curious onlookers who are following Jesus just for the spectacle. It's even the sympathizers who, who hear only casually, carelessly, and never bear any fruit. So that now brings us to the part of the answer that a lot of people, I think, will find troubling. At first glance, it can sound like Jesus is saying, I don't want them to turn again. I've hidden this truth, so they won't. But Jesus didn't originate this statement. 
I'm, I'm thankful for the translators of the ESV, at least in my version. They've set this, this part um, in, a, in a different setting and, and let you see that this is a quote. He's actually quoting Isaiah. And he's not saying, I'm speaking parables in order that Isaiah might be fulfilled. What he's actually saying is, I'm speaking in parables because Isaiah is being fulfilled. So let's take a closer look. Let's, let's jump back to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, where this quote is taken from. And the immediate context there is that the prophet Isaiah um, is being commissioned to go to disobedient Israel. And he's being told that his message is not going to result in Israel's repentance, but instead is going to result in their being further hardened. So the Lord said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's a hard message for Isaiah to have to hear. And actually, he's, he struggles with it. He's like, how, like, how long am I going to have to preach this? <laughs> the Lord said back, until the cities are gone. <laughs> Right? It's, uh, there's not going to be repentance. Um, they, are, they are stubborn. And each of the four gospel writers actually picks up on this quote from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And each time that they do, it's in the context of Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah. It's, it's always in the face of unbelief in the kingdom of God. And here, the people didn't want to be healed. That's the point that Jesus is making. So to prevent the healing of their spirit, to prevent the healing of the hurt of their heart, which is what Jesus wanted to bring them, they actually closed their eyes and their ears. What did the people want? They, they wanted physical healing. That's why they'd come out. That's all they're really looking for. They're, they're looking for Jesus to cure their diseases and cast out their demons, and then they want to just go back to the way that they were living. And so Jesus knows this about their hearts, and he pronounces judgment on them. He says they are fulfilling the very words of Isaiah the prophet. Time has run out for these people. And the word of God is no longer going to be effective to save them. It's only effective now to just render their hearts insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. So when the word of God doesn't soften and save and heal, it doesn't mean that it's not being effective. The word may be doing God's work of judgment, maybe hardening people, making their ears so dull that they'll never want to hear again. So take heed how you hear. Don't be cavalier in the hearing of God's word. When we come in here week after week, pay attention to how we hear the word of God. If it's not softening and saving and healing and bearing fruit, then it's probably hardening and blinding and dulling. Let's, let's continue in Mark 4. Let's skip down now to um, verse 21 where we continue in Jesus' private teaching to his disciples. Um, and you can see here that the audience is still the same, right? It's still the close followers. Because Mark starts, verse 21, with, and he said to them. And the closest antecedent there, the, the, the most recent them that he's referring to is, is back in verse 10, where it says he was alone with those around him, with the twelve. Uh, so we're taking these verses out of order, right? And that can be a little risky because um, it's possible we would miss an important connection, right? The, the, you know, they were um, inspired in the order that they, that they are here. And, and so we're rearranging them 
um, because we, you know, we want to see some things, but I don't want us to miss what I think is an important connection between fruit and light. So, um, you know, part of hearing the word and accepting it and bearing fruit is that we would then shine the lights of the gospel. So if you've been given the seed, you're supposed to sow it. If you've been given the light, you're supposed to let it shine. We all know that children's song. Um, so that's, what, that's the, the teaching that Jesus is picking up there in, in verse 21. We don't hide our lamp. That's not why it's here. It's not meant to, to be hidden. But I'm guessing that the disciples are going to have some questions at this point, right? Because they've seen what's been going on during all these months of ministry in Galilee. And they've seen the shift in Jesus' teaching, right? At the beginning, he was openly proclaiming truth, preaching the kingdom. But many of the people, and especially the leaders in Galilee, have rejected it. So now, when the crowd gathers, he speaks in parables without explanation. It's an act of divine judgment. He's, he's cutting them off from further truth, and he's withholding the light, dimming the light from them. So I would imagine the disciples at this point might ask, wait a minute, is this now the new plan? Like, this is it. Is this little group of disciples just as far as the kingdom is going to go? Should we just now go around pronouncing judgment? Actually, remember James and John in Luke chapter 9? I don't know if you remember this story. They actually asked the Lord that question. They came into a village. The village rejected Jesus, and they asked, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> and Jesus rebuked them for that. Okay, so for Jesus, the plan is still, if you've been given the light, you shine it. If you've been given the seed, you sow it. The next verse in, um, there in uh, verse 22 has a similar truism, right? And it's driving that same point home. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light. And I think at some level we all get that, right? It's no fun to play hide-and-seek if no one ever comes looking for you. In fact, it's, it's just a little bit sad, <laughs> speaking from experience. Um, <clears throat> it's, it was a good spot, though. It was a really good spot. Um, Right, it's no fun to wrap up your, your Christmas presents or your birthday presents if no one is ever going to open them. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's, yeah, it's being kept secret now for a time, but the time is coming and, and will be here soon to open it up, to, to disclose that secret to everybody. So in other words, the hiddenness of the gospel from verse 10 is not supposed to hinder us from the bold proclamation of the word of God. And that brings us to another exhortation to hear. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear. Notice the reason that he gives there in verse 25 for why we need to be so vigilant over how we hear. It says, for to the one who has more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What is that referring to? Well, actually, it's referring back to the parable of the soils. So three times the hearer does not take heed to how they hear the word of God. And three times the word that is sown is taken away. But the fourth time, the hearer does take heed to how they hear. And this time, when the word is sown, it produces fruit. The one who has, more will be given. So now we're going to go back to that parable, right, right at the heart of this chapter. And we're going to take a, a closer look at how Jesus interprets it. We want to make sure that we understand what's actually going on when the, the word that is sown is taken away. 
Though when Jesus interprets the parable of the soil, he, he actually only explicitly mentions Satan once, but make no mistake, Satan is hard at work. We know from the rest of Scripture that he is working in all the soils. And it, what he's trying to do is nullify the Word of God, to make its hearers fruitless. So that's why we need to take heed how we hear the Word. So we're going to connect uh, the, the parable in 3 to 9 to the interpretation in 13 to 20. Um, first, um, first thing we want to notice about how Jesus interprets the parable is what he doesn't say. So um, verse 3 says, the sower went out to sow. Verse 14 interprets it. The sower sows the word. Okay? The sower sows the word. So he doesn't say anything about the sower. There's no adjective in front of sower. He doesn't say the good sower. He doesn't say the successful sower, the culturally savvy sower. Nothing more needs to be said about the identity of the sower. It's not about the sower. Okay? It's, a, it's, it's not about the technique or the skill of the sower. Right? It's about something else. Right? He says he sows the word. So that's the first thing that Jesus interprets. The seed is the word. Um, now, it gets a little bit tricky because as he goes on and interprets, he kind of shifts a little bit, and that's okay. It's Jesus. He's, you know, a parable doesn't always have to mean just the one thing. And here, Jesus transitions a little bit so that the, um, you know, the people kind of become the soil and the seed is the people sometimes. And, but um, we're not going to get caught up too much in that. Um, the, the one thing I do want to make note of here is that this parable, we so often hear it applied to evangelism and only evangelism, right? The initial sowing of the word into an unbeliever's life. And I think that causes us maybe to fail to see the discipleship that's inherent here. Right? The fact is we need the gospel daily. We need to keep sowing the word into each other's hearts and into the soil of our own hearts. No matter whether you first believed in Jesus 75 minutes ago or 75 years ago. We need to continue to take heed how we hear God's word long after we first respond to it. So remember what's at stake. Without the word of God abiding and taking root in our hearts, we cannot bear fruit, be disciples, or inherit eternal life. So we need to move quickly here through the rest of this interpretation. Um, so let's, let's just look at each one and see and hear the different kinds of hearing that Jesus interprets. So verse uh, 4 is interpreted in verse 15. Um, there is seed that's sown along the path, and when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word. So that's the first kind of hearing. It's a hearing that goes in one ear and out the other. When they hear, Satan comes immediately. There's no time for sympathetic response to the word at all. The, the hard soil of this hearer's heart is going to keep him from giving any serious attention to the Word of God. And Satan's going to use any number of distractions to keep you from paying attention to the Word of God. Right? He's going to keep you, too, keep you up too late on a Saturday night to stay focused on a Sunday morning. He's going to tempt you with the buzz of your cell phone. He's going to tempt you with the taste of the steak that you're going to enjoy uh, after the service today. And if he can distract you long enough, Satan's going to swoop in and he's going to take away the Word of God before it has the chance to become effective for you. Distraction is not his only strategy to take it away immediately. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, we don't have time to turn there, but Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So the people hear what's being said, but they actually despise it. And Satan is hard at work convincing people that the death of Jesus on the cross means nothing to them. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So the word of God gains no foothold, and Satan takes it away. 
All right, keep on moving, right? In verses 5 to 6, we have the rocky ground. And, and Jesus interprets that in verses 16 and 17 as saying they hear the word, they immediately receive it, but then tribulation, persecution arises, and they immediately fall away. So that's a second kind of hearing. It's a hearing that lasts until the hard times come. And with this kind of hearing, the word of God does, it gains a little toehold, but then Satan goes into overtime to make sure it doesn't take root. Paul mentions this kind of attack in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. He heard that the Christians there were being persecuted, and he feared that somehow the tempter had tempted them and, and that Paul's labor would be in vain. So just because Satan isn't able initially to keep you from responding joyfully to the word of God, he's not going to give up, right? He's going to try to keep your soil shallow and attack you with hard times. He'll try to convince you that the word of God is not worth the trouble it brings. The next kind of soil. Jesus says in verse 7, it's sown among thorns. And in verses 18 and 19, he interprets and says, they hear the word, but the cares of the world enter in and choke it out, and it proves unfruitful. So that's a third kind of hearing. It's a hearing that initially flourishes, but then riches and pleasures choke it off. So if persecution doesn't work, Satan might actually try prosperity. He'll, he'll start to feed you the lie that if you hold fast to the word, you're going to have to give up something better. If we had time to look at Ephesians 2, um, we would see that when people follow Satan, they're, they're not dragged away against their desires. They're actually going along with their fleshly desires. And Satan's going to use those desires to choke out the word of God from your life. And so finally, verse 8, Jesus talks about the good soil, and then he interprets it. In verse 20, and he says that those are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. So that's a fourth kind of hearing. It's a hearing that resists the work of Satan. It's a hearing that endures the trials of life that scorns the, the riches, and it's a hearing that bears fruit. Okay? In all four instances, the word is heard, but only in this fourth one does the hearing bear fruit. That's the kind of hearing we want to hear. We want to pay attention. So let's ask God for that kind of hearing today. May the Lord destroy the work of Satan and make us fruitful people by taking heed to how we hear his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, open our ears that we may hear your word. Just like you, we, we ask that you to open our eyes so that we could delight in your word. Lord, help us to hear well this morning your word. Help us to be the good soil so that the word of God may take root in our lives and may flourish and may uh, reap an abundant harvest. Lord, do it on account of your glory and for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen.